Savvy listeners like you make the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast possible. Please consider donating to this project at www.patreon.com slash pioslabs. Thanks. It's May 1st, 2017, and this is the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. Dr. Cynthia Taylor has taught coding and computer science in small liberal arts college classrooms and in huge lecture halls filled with students. She also does research on pedagogy in CS at the University of Illinois at Chicago, or UIC. What has she learned about how best to teach CS? I'm your host, Pius Wong. Hear all this and more next. Can you briefly introduce yourself and what you do at UIC? Yeah, so I'm Cynthia Taylor, and I'm a clinical associate professor at UIC. Um, The clinical title is a little weird. It's something we kind of stole from the medical school, actually. But um, it just means that I'm in a teaching-focused position. So I teach uh, two classes every semester, and then I also do research on pedagogy, Uh, and computer science education and how people learn computer science. And so full disclosure for anyone listening, and um, Dr. Taylor, you know this, I went to UIC, I graduated with an undergraduate degree in bioengineering. And so my impression of UIC is it's a big state school and like huge classes, especially at the lower levels for me. Um, Could you describe what it's like teaching at UIC? Yeah, so I have uh, kind of a different perspective on this because actually beforehand, I was teaching at uh, Oberlin College, which is a small liberal arts college. So I went from somewhere where I had classes of about 20 people to somewhere now where I have classes of uh, right now, one of my classes, 150 people and the other classes, 100 people. Um, So it was a big, big change for me. And, you know, I was wondering, is teaching at Oberlin College, is that like teaching in high school? Because in my mind, I'm thinking that sounds so much like those smaller classes you might have. I think it was similar just in the terms of how much real hands-on engagement I could have with each student. You know, when you have a class of 20 people or 15 people, you can really make sure that everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing And you can check in personally with everyone who's getting, who's not doing well, right? You have the ability to make sure that every student is really getting their needs met. In your other classes at UIC, is it a little bit harder? It's a a lot harder uh, just with the scale, right? Um, I think it's really rewarding because you're, you're just... You have the ability to touch so many more lives than you otherwise would. Um, And I think as higher education grows and grows, this is sort of the only way we're able to actually meet the demand for it. Um, But it does require a little different approach to it. Like it becomes much more of a kind of management problem. And also thinking about, okay, if I have 100 students, how am I going to keep them engaged in the lecture, right? How do I keep it from just feeling like, just me droning at them, which I think is where <laughs> active learning really comes in for me. Yeah, so I wanted to bring that up. Um, you're a big proponent and researcher of something called active learning, and you've got some some articles about it that I was uh, reading. For listeners who might not know what that is, how would you describe that? Yeah, so active learning is just this idea that 
um, your students are actually doing something in your classroom. So in a traditional college level university class, frequently is just the professor talking the whole 50 minutes or 75 minutes, right? Um, and there's a lot of research that shows that that's a, actually a really bad way to teach, that actually students don't learn very well for it. So the idea behind active learning is just that your students are actively working on material in your class. So they're doing some sort of activity, they're engaged in some way. Um, frequently in large classes, this means they're working in small groups. Um, I use a very lightweight form of active learning called peer instruction, where they're using clickers, which I think mm. a lot of your listeners may be already familiar with. Um, but if they're not, a clicker is a device that lets them, it has um, like five buttons and it just lets them vote on multiple choice answers in real time. So when I'm teaching a class, I'll do kind of a standard lecture for somewhere between five and 10 minutes and then I'll put up a multiple choice question and my students will first vote on it individually and then they're in a discussion group and they'll discuss it in a group of about three people and then they'll re-vote as a group and then we'll discuss the question as a class. Does that peer instruction method change depending on if you're in a smaller class like at Oberlin versus a huge class? So I've used peer instruction in almost every class I've taught from a class of nine people to a class of 150 people. Um, and I found it very successful in all of those uh, environments. I actually have a paper that I wrote about using it specifically in small classes. For me, the main difference was that when I had a smaller class, I could really kind of walk around and listen in a lot more on what my groups were discussing and really give them more feedback. Whereas with a bigger class, uh, I have to kind of schedule the feedback more as when the entire class talks together and has a chance to ask questions. Okay. And so I'm imagining these classes, the active learning component is a lot, a lot of it is discussion. It's not like they're always having to sit there in front of a computer and code. Yeah, exactly. So my classes basically don't involve uh, them actually coding in class at all. What they're really doing is that I have some sort of small problem, which may just be like a conceptual problem, or it might be um, something they actually have to work out. So a lot of times they'll have problems where I'll give them a code snippet and I'll have them come up with what that code would print out. Oh, or interesting. Yeah, something like that. Or I teach um, computer architecture a lot. So there, there's a lot of questions where you're translating things into binary or... Um, picking at the assembly language instructions that would do something or something like that. So they're constantly thinking, basically, is what exactly, it sounds like. Exactly, okay. exactly. Um, I like to think of it as they get to check to make sure that they know what I'm talking about, and I get in real time a histogram of how they voted. So I get to see, okay, all my students understand this, or okay, nobody has any idea what I'm talking about, and I better go back and discuss that some more. When I was reading a little bit about what you're talking about, these peer instruction methods, it reminds me of what some other teachers have told me. They've um, talked about things like uh, the flipped classroom, where they yes. have students, I guess, teach more in the beginning or, or teach themselves in the beginning. Yeah, so this is actually a common form of flipped classroom because obviously, you know, probably 
a quarter to a third of my in-class time is now these questions and discussion. So to kind of make up for that lost time, um, I assign readings every for every class that then my students have a daily reading quiz on. A lot of people also will do little videos and have students watch video lectures to make up for kind of the time you're spending instead on discussion. I can't even imagine what it would be like for high school teachers to teach computer science if they don't actually know computer science, but apparently that's a or they don't have a degree in computer science, apparently that's a situation a lot. They have teachers that might be experienced in teaching physics, but they all of a sudden have to start teaching some kind of programming class. I'm wondering what tips you, as a more experienced CS teacher, might be able to give someone like that. If like if there was one thing you could tell them, what's yeah? What's a tip so you could that is them? super common, um, and I actually I have some sympathy for this because I came from. Uh, as I mentioned, a very small uh, school before this where we only right. had six professors. So they would kind of be like, okay, Cynthia, you get to teach this, go, right? <laughs> um, so I have a lot of sympathy for that situation. I would say my number one, the thing I tell myself all the time is you don't have to know everything. You just have to know more than your students. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's totally okay to be like one step ahead of them. The other thing I love about computer science is, you know, there's it's so rich, it's so complicated. There's no way you could possibly know everything, right? My students are constantly asking me questions, and I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but one thing that's great is you can say, well, like, oh, well, let's find out. And you can open up your coding environment and write some code and see what it does, right? So that is a trick I use all of the time is <laughs> like, let's see what happens. That's interesting. So you, as a CS teacher, you don't necessarily have to know every single function and command and concept. Like, Oh, I mean, that would be impossible, right? There's so many different programming languages. There's so many. And this, even at the university level, um, you know, I taught an intro class where we would change the intro level to Python and I'd used Python I don't know, a couple of times before, but I was basically learning it along with my students. And so there was a lot of me opening the Python interpreter and being like, oh, yeah, let's see what happens when we do this. That's funny because I, I actually know a whole bunch of teachers right now who are going through that. They're learning Python as their students are learning it. Yeah, and it's, it's tricky. It is. I feel like so... Uh, the way that the fancy pedagogy way that I refer to this is you're modeling expert thinking, but definitely just kind of solving the problem in front of them, I think is something that's actually more valuable maybe than if you just can tell them the answer. Interesting. Why, why would you say that? Because it's kind of the like teach a man how to fish approach, right? Like they, uh, it doesn't matter so much what, the exact way to do something in Python is, right? Because mm. when your students go on, they're going to be learning new languages all the time. So it's way more valuable for them to learn how to solve these problems in any language, right? How to approach not knowing something and figuring it out. That brings me to something that I'm reminded of. Sometimes I remember doing teacher training and we would teach them how to do a little bit of Arduino programming. And if a teacher's not experienced with it, it could be so frustrating for them um, mm -hmm. to try and pick it up. And so if a teacher is getting frustrated, I'm sure that's not good in front of their kids, but like how would they deal, how should they deal with that 
uh, frustration? Oh, that's a good question. I think we've definitely all had that moment where like your demo is going wrong and you're trying to live debug something in front of the classroom. And it's always like, it's it's that kind of terrifying, right? Because you're like, can I fix this? What is going on? Um, definitely the first time I do something, I take a lot fewer risks just from like, I make sure I'm doing a demo that I did on my own beforehand and I knew worked before in the class, I go in the classroom. And then like the second or third time I'm teaching the class, I go a little, a lot more off script. I think also just being able to show that you don't necessarily know anything, everything is also kind of valuable to students, right? Cause you're an expert and if you don't know the answer, it's sort of showing them like, it's okay to not know, right? Like you can be an expert and not know everything. You just mm. need to know how to figure things out. The clicker questions that you're talking about, it reminds me of something that I saw in your research. You wrote a lot about concept inventories. Is that something that's related? Um, so concept inventories are something I came to partly just in an effort to assess my own research, because when you're looking at assessing an experiment you do in your teaching, it's actually really hard to tell if you're successful or not, right? If I make a change in my classroom, I can measure, did my students like it pretty easily, right? I can mm -hmm. give them a survey and I can see uh, whether or not they liked it or whether they think that it helped them learn. But it's actually pretty tricky to see did my students actually learn more with me doing this thing than they would have without doing this thing, right? Right. And so the idea of concept inventories is just that it should be a high-level test that tests just the con core concepts of a class. Uh, it has to be something that's easy to give to a class because you want to be able to have any teacher give it to any you know, any operating systems class or any data structures class or any whatever class. Um, so usually they're multiple choice. And the idea is not that it's a tool to measure individual student learning, but that it's a tool to measure whether your class as a whole is learning better uh, than they would otherwise, right? So it's kind of a standardized assessment to measure uh, pedagogical techniques. And this came out of the physics community is really where concept inventories come from. They come out of uh, someone who was at MIT and his students were doing great. His students were really great at um, being able to take a formula and plug in the, the numbers and get the answers. But then when he asked them real world questions and how this changed their conception of how things actually worked in the world, it turned out it wasn't changing their conceptions of the world at all. Like they could mm -hmm. do these kind of plug and chug questions, but they still weren't getting the concepts of how things worked. And so he developed this concept inventory called the force concept inventory, which has been used a bunch in physics and actually really led kind of the changeover to active learning within the physics community. And there's a huge study they did on active learning in physics where they have like 
6,000 students and like 20 different instructors and they use the concept inventory for everyone and we're able to really tell, okay, you know, students with active learning are actually learning more mm -hmm. conceptually than students who aren't. Um, so that's really where that comes from. Um, and so we, unfortunately in computer science, there aren't a lot of these in existence. Actually a group um, just developed one for CS1. So there's now a CS1 concept inventory that's available out there if you email um, the people who developed it. And so that would be like a set of formative assessments or, or questions you could ask in the middle of class? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So it's a set of kind of multiple choice formative assessment questions that you can ask to kind of say, see how what your students are learning compares to what anybody else teaching CS1, what their students are learning. Yeah, that um, would, do they have research results on that? Because that would be super interesting. So it just came out. They just developed all the questions. Um, and it's been available for probably less than six months now. So I think now they're really trying to get people to start using it in the classroom to actually get research results from it. Okay. Um, one thing that's similar that's available for K through 12 is, of course, the APCS test, mm -hmm. um, which is nice because it gives you that kind of standardized assessment power where everybody's taking the same questions and you can see how many students are taking the test and then also how many students are getting fours and fives on the test. And there's been a lot of work I know in K through 12 in computer science looking at who is taking and who is passing the APCS test, especially in terms of diversity work. There's right. been a lot of work with people trying to increase the number of underrepresented students who are taking and passing the APCS test. So you might recommend using some of those questions to gauge your your own yeah, teaching pedagogy. Definitely. Or if you're, you know, teaching APCS, just if your students are taking that test anyway, that gives you really good feedback, right, about how your students are doing compared to everybody else at the national level. Cynthia and I started talking about the new AP Computer Science Principles Initiative, too, and how to increase access to CS education. She recommended a book on this issue called Stuck in the Shallow End by author Jane Margolis. Uh, it's a great book by this woman who looked at several different high schools in Los Angeles and looked at how their, like, what options students had in order to take CS classes. Um, and what she found, if, if you want to become really enraged, you should definitely read this book. <laughs> because okay. basically she found that students at poor classes had no resources and no CS classes. Right. Um, and that students at wealthy schools had a lot of resources. And one of the things she found, um, which was really interesting, was that frequently teachers have this problem where they confuse innate talent in CS just with people who have had prior experience in CS. Mm, okay. Um, which is a big problem for our discipline because, you know, in if you're teaching biology, right, you know that most students have gone through a pretty standard, like, high school bio class. Um, and obviously, like, some people have had more rigorous experiences than others, but they've learned probably close to the same things. Whereas in computer science, when we teach CS1 at the college level, 
we have students coming in who have taken classes where you know, they basically know all the material we're teaching them. And we really, our goal is to kind of get them to test out of CS1. And we have students who have never really even used a computer that much before. And teaching to that broad spectrum is really hard. And I think it's especially dangerous when you combine it in CS. We frequently have this myth of this kind of like innate CS skill mm -hmm. uh, or like this kind of junior hacker, genius hacker mythos. Um, and I think pe frequently people see like, oh, these people in my class are doing so well and these people are doing so poorly, like clearly just these people are really good and these people aren't. When in fact, like maybe the people who are really good are the people who had access to computers and computer programming before they came into your class. Yeah, that's super relevant. A lot of teachers have told me that that's what they see in their own classes. Some teachers who do teach computer science they frequently say it's easily split up into two groups, the people who are super good, I guess, just right <laughs> off the bat because they've already done it and everything is just too easy. And then the other people who are just doing these things for the first time. And that's like the number one question that we used to get as curriculum developers. How do you teach to one class that has basically two levels of experience? Yeah, it's really difficult. I think the most successful we've been is just kind of trying to create kind of like multi-level exercises where you can say, okay, if you know this stuff, do this other thing mm. while you focus on the people who don't know this stuff yet. Um, but it's really hard. And I think it's always really tempting when you get students who you know, you always, people who are really bright and really engaged and really get the material, it's really fun, right? Like you get to like nerd out with them and be like, yeah, this is awesome. Let's talk about it. Um, but I think it, then you have this real danger of losing the people who uh, don't know things yet, right? Right, right. So that brings me back to peer instruction. When you get your groups of kids together to talk about different concepts, does it matter how they group up? Do you pair people with a lot of experience together or do you pair them up with people with less experience? Yeah, so this is actually an open question um, that I would love if someone out there wants to do a research project on this. I would love <laughs> to see the results. Um, personally, I tend to group them by experience and I do that just because my nightmare is that you have like two really advanced kids and one student who's underexposed and then that one student is kind of left out of all of the discussion. Hmm. Um, so, so you I, mean sim you group similar levels of experience together? Yeah, okay. I group similar levels of experience together because that way I feel like you have more students working together on a level playing field and the less like one person being the expert or two people being the expert and one person being left out. I see. And do you, um, do you change up groups or are they pretty much so I together? change up groups usually like midway through the semester I give them an option where I say okay you can decide if you want to stay with your group or change your group okay. and usually about a quarter of people maybe want a different group um, and half of those some of them are like no I love my group don't make me change it <laughs> um, so it's very interesting and are there any other tips you can give about good or bad peer instruction yeah, so I think developing the questions is something that is definitely really hard. Um, I would say in general, like I try to have a 
question every like five to 10 slides. I think having any question is better than having no questions. Cause at least at the very least you're having your students like briefly think about something. <laughs> like they're not, they don't get to just sleep for a whole hour at least. Um, <laughs> but also like developing, you want your questions to be kind of conceptual. You want them to be less uh, plug and chug. I think a problem that I had uh, frequently early on when I was developing questions, is I had a lot of questions that were kind of like, just do you remember what I had on the last slide? Um, and so I've been kind of trying to move to, if they need any information, making sure that information is on the slide with the question. So it's less of just a memory right, question, right. Like more of a, can you actually apply these concepts kind of question. When you start talking about that, it makes me think that having a concept inventory or some database of questions would be a huge time saver for teachers. Oh, oh yes. So I I should plug this. So first of all, <laughs> uh, a bunch of people I know run a website. It's called Peer Instruction for CS. It's the number four. And they have a huge database of available peer instruction questions for a bunch of different classes. I think they might have even APCS principles up there. Okay. They definitely have like intro CS in like Java, intro CS in Python, intro CS with MediaComp, like a bunch of different intro classes. So if people want uh, materials, they have a great bunch of slides and peer instruction questions that you can just go to their website and you fill out a form and they'll email you uh, the the slides, right? So you can just get a whole class's worth of PowerPoint with peer instruction questions. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's run by Cynthia Bailey Lee, who is a uh, lecturer at Stanford. Are there any other resources you would suggest for teachers? Yeah, so my second plug <laughs> is that uh, if they are going to, well, first of all, SIGSI uh, is the conference, it's the ACM Symposium on Computer Science Education. It's a conference that happens in March every year. And it's all kinds of computer science education, but they do have, I think, one day that focuses on K through 12. And there's definitely a bunch of K through 12 people there. Uh, there's a bunch of talks about people who are doing K through 12 work. So that's a great conference to go to. They definitely have a proceedings with all of the papers. So you need access to like the ACM library to read the papers. But I think hmm. I'm not I'm not sure how it works if you're at an elementary school. There uh, might be like science coordinators or district coordinators who do have access to that and they could probably help Yeah, out definitely. Local or anyone at a university should have access to yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. No, that's really neat. And so all of these ideas are awesome. And it just reminds me of my own education. And I, like I said, I didn't get a CS degree, but I had to try to learn a lot of programming in various classes. But I did have one excellent lecturer, and I was telling you this before, who was teaching me Fortran. I don't think anyone teaches Fortran anymore. <laughs> Not so much. Although <laughs> uh, now if you do know Fortran, uh, Fortran programmers are in really high demand because there's a huge amount of legacy code that is still in Fortran that companies need to keep updated. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, like apparently the Navy is like all Fortran. Wow. I yeah. guess uh, if, if kids have a very targeted career goal, they know what to study. <laughs> exactly. Then. Learn Fortran. I was wondering, what was your 
educational experience like compared to what you you give? Basically, what what was learning CS like for you, and is it any different from how you're teaching it? Oh, well, it was definitely very different. I mean, it was definitely the traditional lecture classes. I remember my CS1 class was at, it was at like 9 a.m. And it was in a lecture hall with, you know, 60 students and they would turn all the lights off. I I feel like they used to turn, <laughs> like maybe projectors were worse when we were in college mm-hmm. um, because you used to just have this totally dark classroom, which thank goodness you don't need anymore. But every morning I remember to be in the CS class and the professor had this, he had this amazing Welsh accent. So this very kind of like lulling, sonorific voice. And you just look around and like half of the room would be asleep, <laughs> you know. Um, and yet you stuck with it. I did. Well, I just loved, then I would go to the lab and I would get to write my little programs and it was so magical. I just loved it. Um, But I, so one thing that frequently, um, obviously I spent a lot of my time trying to convince people that they should be doing active learning and peer instruction and all of this. And one of the feedbacks that we get a lot is like, well, you know, I went through all lecture, like, it works for me. Why doesn't it work for everybody else? Right. Mm. Um, like why can't we hear a lot of like kids today just need to learn how to learn from a lecture. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that I like to point out, you know, is there's an incredibly, usually I'm talking to people, uh, who are just college professors. And I say, you know, less than 1% of the population has a PhD, which means if you made it this far, you're just a total freak. Like, why would you assume (laughs) that what worked for you works for everyone else when you're clearly a total statistical outlier, right? Like people who go into education are people who love school, right? So of course, this stuff worked for us, but it doesn't mean that there's any evidence that it worked for anybody else, right? And the other is, like, is, you know, did you learn because of lecture? Or did you learn despite lecture, right? <laughs> How well would you have done without with uh, more active techniques? Huh. So you're also making the argument here then that CS and education should be accessible to more than that 1%, that we should have this broader access to computer science. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I love computer science and I want everybody to love it. And I think it's going to be necessary, right? Because now everybody uses a computer, like no matter what you do, you're more and more likely to use computer programming in any science or any job, right? Like now if you're in biology, you have to be able to write scripts to process your data for any, any of these sciences. Oh, totally. And particularly engineering people keep on emphasizing that it's in every single discipline. Yeah, we definitely, all of our engineers take a CS class at UIC now. Oh, really? And they aren't teaching Fortran anymore? Because I think that was the one that... <laughs> no, we, <laughs> we have them teach this. We take, they take this class that's half, um, it's half in C and then it's half in MATLAB, which oh, is wow. like a, um, a scripting language for matrix multiplication. Were you one of the kids who really, really loved CS from when you were really little? So I'm actually kind of a weirdo because when I was really little, I was always a stereotypical like humanities and English person. Like I was always reading books and I really loved uh, writing. I had this idea that I would be a writer when I grew up. And then 
uh, I got on the internet really early uh, for the internet in like 93 or something. Mm -hmm. And it was right when, um, when the World Wide Web was starting, right? When it was like brand new, like I was looking at it in like Netscape or something. <laughs> um, and I started making, I started learning how to make websites. And at the time you could just go to any website and, um, and you could just do view source and you could see the code for the website and you could kind of steal other people's code and change it around. And so I really liked doing that. And then I thought, oh, maybe I'll go to college and I'll uh, take some computer programming classes. And I sort of had this idea that, you know, maybe being a writer is not the most fiscally solid career. So I could have a have a backup plan. Um, so then I went to college and I took computer science and I just fell in love with it. So I I feel like I'm kind of the opposite of every kid who went to college to become a doctor and becomes like a dancer. Like I have the opposite <laughs> story. Oh, wow. But to me, it sounds like there's a lot of parallels between good writing and good coding or programming. Yeah. What I've always loved about computer science is that you're building something. So even though you're not, um, even though you're not building a physical thing, like you just type and then you're making a thing that kind of lives on your computer and does stuff. And that was always so magical to me. One of sort of the pitfalls we kind of fall into in STEM is kind of just staying in STEM world and not um, thinking this is kind of the most important thing. And I think it's so powerful to kind of reach out to art and the humanities and we have so much to learn from them and you can create just amazing things when you collaborate together. Uh, I have, um, the op have had the opportunity to do some collaborations with artists and it's been really amazing to get to work together and, you know, do Arduino projects and things like that. All right. Well, I think that that is the last question that I was going to ask. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? <laughs> no, I think that's it. Thank all you right. for letting me do my plugs. No, no problem, Cynthia. It's all about plugging things that are, are cool. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much, Cynthia, for your time and for doing all this research and sharing what you know with all our other engineering and CS teachers listening. And I wish you luck in your continued research. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This has been really fun. For links to the resources that Dr. Cynthia Taylor mentioned here, check out the show notes. Follow the show on Twitter at K12Engineering, and you can find me on Twitter at Pius Wong. Subscribe to and share the show however you get and share your podcasts, and please write a review. That'll help others find the show. All the details are at www.k12engineering.net. Our closing music is from Late for School by BleepTor under a Creative Commons attribution license. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast is a production of my independent studio, Pios Labs. And you can support Pios Labs at www.patreon.com slash Labs. In my post-show informal notes today, I just have two messages. One is check out the slightly updated website for the podcast, www.k12engineering.net. If you go to the side and look for the episodes section where it lists out season one and season two episodes, you can click on 
um, an individual episode and it'll bring you to show notes and resource links and also transcripts for that episode. And not only that, once you're there, you can kind of more easily navigate to other transcripts for other episodes. And it wasn't like that before. So I'm proud that it's gotten even this far. I will continue to add transcripts. Um, and in fact, if I get enough Patreon support, I can pay someone to help me get those transcripts up because it does take a lot of effort. But I am happy to do it. And I know that some people already appreciate it, especially if English is not your first language or if you're hearing impaired. So um, yeah, just check out that website. It's great. The second message is an ongoing message. As you know, I am trying to develop educational games and educational video games to help kids, especially to learn engineering. What I want to do is do some market research. And if you tell me what you think the most important or most challenging or most difficult concepts to learn in engineering are, if you email me that or tweet me that, that will go into my tally for my market research. And that'll guide what kind of games I create. Um, so yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what things I should make and you can help me do that. You can help guide what games I make. That's all. Send me an email about your thoughts. Uh, yeah, until next time, take care. <laughs> <laughs>